The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Please stand if you're able now for the reading of God's Word. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit it. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, hey, next week we're actually going to wrap up the book of Numbers, and in two weeks we're going to begin our Advent series um, in the first two chapters of the book of Matthew. And then after Advent, the plan is to keep going in the gospel according to Matthew into January, into February, into the new year. But today we're looking at Numbers chapters 33, 34, and 35. And so go ahead and turn there in a copy of God's Word if you haven't already. Uh, We've been in the book of Numbers for 14 weeks now, actually, this book um, that's all about God's Old Testament people traveling in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Now, that theme of wilderness, uh, there's two ways to think about it with respect to the book of Numbers and our lives. Uh, The first way is to see our lives as a wilderness, that we're traveling through on the way to the promised land of heaven. We've talked about that and talked about thinking about the wilderness theme in that way in this series. Another way to to think about the wilderness theme is uh, the wilderness is something that we're emerging from uh, as we mature as Christians. I love how Eugene Peterson, the late Eugene Peterson, likens the Old Testament book of Exodus to the birth of God's people, Leviticus to childhood, and numbers to adolescence. God's people, and of course I mean that in a, in a generation-spanning sort of way, but God's people in the book of Numbers are figuring out in a very real way who they are and whose they are. They're coming into their own. They're learning to, to trust God, to depend on Him, to obey Him, to worship Him, and Him alone. They're growing up, see, out of a a, a sort of spiritual adolescence and into, as Peterson would say, the adulthood of Deuteronomy. Now, think about that and think about where we're at in numbers. Uh, We're actually not in the wilderness anymore. God's people, as we take up the text today in chapter 33, are in the plains of Moab. They're emerging, see, from the wilderness, And as we look at this text today and apply it to our lives, what we're going to see, what I want you to see is that emerging from the wilderness includes, number one, looking back, number two, pressing forward, and number three, taking refuge in Jesus. And so listen, as you think about emerging from the wilderness 
in your life, of growing up and trusting God, like no matter what comes your way, as you strive to grow in understanding who you are and whose you are, as you seek to mature as a Christian, emerging from the wilderness in your life includes these three things, looking back, pressing forward, taking refuge in Jesus. First, looking back, almost all of chapter 33 has the shape of a travel log. It's a, a recording, an accounting of where God's people have been. It's, it's looking back. Look at chapter 33, verse 1. It says, These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. And listen, what follows is an accounting, a, a, a travel log of sorts from when they set out from Ramses in Egypt, way back in, in Egypt, verse 3 here says, that reaches all the way back to, to, to the Exodus. And then if we skip down to verses 48 and 49, it ends in where we're at now, in the plains of Moab, across the Jordan River from Jericho. But did you notice in verse 2, Moses didn't just write this down because he was like, a train spotter before his days, an eccentric with a moleskin just jotting down everything that he could, right? No, he wrote it down because God commanded him to. Why would God do that? I mean, if you've read chapter 33, you would think that a better name for the book is names, not numbers, right? I mean, there's a lot of them, and most of them you can't pronounce, you know, so they set out from Rissa and camped at Kiletha. And then they set out from Kiletha and camped at Mount Shefer. And then they set out from Mount Shefer and camped at Herada. And then they set out from Herada and camped at Michaloth. 49 verses of that, right? Why is this here? Why did God command Moses to write all this down? Well, because God gave us the capacity as humans to remember, hasn't he? And places evoke memories, don't they? I mean, you know this. That there are places that you have been in your life that when you go back there, a flood of memories comes in. Sometimes good, sometimes not good. Your parents' house. <laughs> your grandparents' house. Your hometown. Your high school gymnasium. I mean, there's all kinds. Some of you will visit family members this coming weekend in their homes. Entering into those places will bring back a flood of memories and emotions. Again, some good, some not so good. And if you have places like that in your memory, you know, you, know, you don't even have to be there for those memories and those emotions to come back, do you? This is why my parents' generation, or some of your, if you're in the generation above me, my parents' generation, um, they, they can say that I remember where I was when JFK was shot. It's why my generation can say, I remember where I was when the planes crashed into the Twin Towers. Some of you can remember where you were when you got that phone call. Or you can remember minute details from the doctor's office room where you heard the diagnosis or the lack thereof. God has given us the capacity to remember and places evoke 
memories. For the Old Testament Israelites here in our text, this list, the stages of the people looking back on it, would have evoked all kinds of memories. Some good, some bad. Some they lived themselves, some they heard from from their parents' generation that became a part of their collective memory as a people. It's not just random, boring lists of people or places here. It's designed to make them look back. And even for future generations to look back and see some things, remember some things. Three things in particular, actually, if we dig into the place names a little bit more. See, some of the places on this travel log would have evoked memories of God's faithfulness. The first place on the list, again, verse 3, it's Ramses. This is where they celebrated the first Passover. It's where they painted blood, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. A place where God struck down the firstborn of the Egyptians but spared their firstborn. It's where God executed judgment on the Egyptian gods. It's the place from where God led his people triumphantly up out of slavery. It's a memory of salvation. It's a memory of deliverance. A memory of the mighty hand of God delivering them from their oppressors. In verse 8, we're reminded of how God led them through the Red Sea. And into the wilderness. Again, God's deliverance is called to mind. God did a very significant thing in the life of his people at the Red Sea. Would you agree? He miraculously provided a way. And then he drowned out all their enemies. And then they sang songs on the far shore that Miriam taught them. I mean, you've got to believe these are strong memories. Even if you were a little bitty kid when that happened. You'd never forget it. Verse 9 mentions Elam. You can read about that in Exodus 15. It's where they came upon 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, bringing to mind the faithfulness of God and providing them water in a thirsty place, shade, rest. Now, just like not all your place memories are happy memories, the same is true for God's Old Testament people here. As we look back upon the travelogue, we not only find Places that evoke memories of God's faithfulness were also confronted with places evoking memories of the people's sinfulness and how they encountered God there. For example, verse 16, Kibroth Hateava was a place that meant graves of craving. This is the place back in Numbers 11 where the people grumbled over having no meat to eat. And you remember what God did? He provided quail until it was coming out their nose, and then he sent a plague upon them for grumbling and not trusting in his provision. Or Kadesh in verse 36 in the wilderness of Zin. This is the place, Numbers 20, remind us where Miriam died and was buried. That's probably a strong memory, huh? It's also the place where there was no water, and the people quarreled with Moses and Aaron. Why did you bring us out here to die? This is the place where God told Moses to speak to the rock, that he'd bring water from it. And Moses had this moment of frustration and anger where he struck the rock twice. And then we're told this the same place, it's the same time that God said that Moses and Aaron, hey, you're not going to enter into the promised land now because of your failure to believe in me here. And to show me as holy in the eyes of the people. There are place names on the list, see, that brought back memories of where God's, where God's people had turned their backs upon God. Doubted God, encountered consequences even for their doubt and their sin. Painful memories to be sure, but also helpful ones. Memories that functioned as 
warnings to their today selves of what happens when you fail to trust God. And then lastly, there's a, a lot of places on the travelogue where, as far as we know, nothing of particular significance really happened. <laughs> places we know nothing else about. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the scripture, actually. You got Dofka and Elush and Tahath. Places, again, they aren't mentioned anywhere. As far as we know, nothing really happened. Nothing really good or amazing. Nothing really bad, painful. Places where there wasn't a mountaintop encounter with God, a spiritual high, or seeing him move in some miraculous fashion. Places that weren't this extraordinary mark of his faithfulness, but also places that it wasn't the valley of the shadow of death. It wasn't a spiritual low of sin and rebellion. Places instead of ordinary, unspectacular, non-Instagrammable everyday life. In obscure and unknown places where God's ordinary people lived in God's extraordinary presence. And I'm convinced that God commanded Moses to write all this down to keep the travel log. Because looking back is an essential component of emerging from the wilderness. It's an essential component of you emerging from the wilderness. You guys know the Capital One commercials? You've seen these? The, the, most of them have uh, Samuel Jackson in them. There's a new one. Have you seen the new one with John Travolta? It's hilarious. John Travolta is in a Santa costume which is funny already, but then he's dancing to like the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack thing, and he's just busting this giant move, and he's dancing all over the place, and then he gets to the end, all these commercials in the same way. How do they end? You know the tagline for Capital One. What is it? Isn't that good advertising? Wow, that's good. What's in your wall? It's good marketing. Well, take that, tweak it a little bit, and ask to apply this text, what's in your travelogue? What's in there? Emerging from the wilderness involves looking back. Have you done this recently? Have you made a list of places? Not just events, but places, your own spiritual travelogue where God showed himself to be faithful in your life. I'm not talking about just like, you know, some big defining moment or some big change. I'm talking about spiritual encounters with God in a place where he showed himself to be faithful to you. This would be a great exercise to do, by the way, this week in the spirit of thanksgiving. To give some time looking back over your life. Where has God met you in a unique way? I got all kinds of these. 14th and R Street over here by Centennial Mall outside my fraternity house. <laughs> At the end of college, when God worked in my life in such a way where I began to question the sources of joy in my life. He was beginning to stir me and draw me to himself. Mid-Rivers Christian Church in St. Peter's, Missouri, where I surrendered my life to Jesus, I knew hardly anything at all except that I was sinful and Jesus forgives sins. And it was like, yes, please, I will raise my hand for that. And, and I got baptized there. Gave my life to Christ there. I-370 on the north side of St. Charles, Missouri, 
on my way to work one morning, listening to a John Piper sermon on Romans 8.1 and just bawling my eyes out as the penny dropped and I came to realize the fullness of the implications of the gospel and that there was right there, right then, right now, no condemnation for me because I was, in uni- I was united with Christ. I was in Christ. I'll never forget that place. Never. Remember sitting in Kayak's Coffee Shop in the corner of Skinker Boulevard and Forest Park Parkway, catty corner to Wash U's campus in downtown area St. Louis, wrestling out a call to church planting and God meeting me there, making clear to me what I was supposed to do. Trusting him. I remember watching the birds outside and having that passage in the Gospels that comes to, to, to mind where he talks about providing for the birds of the air. I'll never forget that place. Even though some stupid chain coffee shop took it over now and ruined it. 815 O Street. 15th and South Street. 4000 Sheridan Boulevard. Right here. Right here. I got places and looking back upon them, recalling God's faithfulness in those places at those times is helpful. It's essential to emerging from the wilderness of growing up in my faith, emerging from the adolescence of of wavering faith into a mature and more adult faith. Trusting God. Growing and trusting in God no matter what comes. This is part of your sanctification. Being able to look back upon God's past faithfulness in your life, it's helpful in remembering and standing firm upon who you are and whose you are. And it's not all merry-go-rounds and horseshoes. You know, there are low spots too. Places that mark low spots in my spiritual journey in the wilderness. Places where I was brought front to face with sin in my life. Places where hard news was broke and I had to Struggle to trust God sometimes in really ugly ways. Counseling rooms, like for, for me, not like me as the counselor, but count, counseling for me, like counseling rooms that I sat in. And looking back upon those places serve, number one, as a warning, there's a, always consequences for sin. Looking back upon former consequences that we've encountered because of sin serves as a warning to avoid sin in our lives. But two, looking back upon these also reminds me of God's grace. As he met me in those places, time after time after time, with his mercy and his forgiveness and his kindness and his restoration. Places where, by his spirit, he initiated massive change in my life. Not all at once, usually, but places I can point to all the same. And then perhaps the hardest one to do is looking back over all the unspectacular ordinary, everyday places where I went to work, came home, ate dinner with my family, maybe watched a show, maybe read a book, enjoyed sleep, places where I did some laundry, raked the leaves, went for a walk with my wife, read the scriptures, quietly, by myself, prayed, had a meaningful conversation over coffee or donuts with one of my daughters, 
These places are all part of your spiritual travelogue too. Places of ordinary, unspectacular, non-Instagrammable everyday life. In obscure, unknown places where we, as God's ordinary people, get to live in his extraordinary presence, enjoying all kinds of provisions that we may otherwise take for granted. What's in your travel log? Looking back upon God's faithfulness, looking back upon your own rebellion and sin and encounters with God with respect to it all, looking back on the ordinary places of God's grace in your life and praising him for his presence, thanking him for his ordinary provisions, for his grace and his love and his care, even through the hard stuff. These things are essential as a regular practice. Looking back, these are essential for emerging from the wilderness. Growing up, maturing in your faith. Well, looking back is one part, but there's more. There's more here. Emerging from the wilderness also involves pressing forward. Turn uh, to the end of chapter 33 with me. Emerging from the wilderness involves pressing forward. God speaks to Moses again here at the end of chapter 33, and he tells him to tell the people something, which is very, very important. We'll read this starting in the middle of verse 51. God tells Moses to tell the people, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot, According to your clans. Listen, this is the land that God's promised his people long ago. Way back in Genesis. They're on the plains of Moab now, just across the river from the Jordan River, just on the other side of Jericho. And God tells them, drive out the people, destroy their idols, destroy their places of worship, take possession and settle there. And he gives a warning in verses 55 through 56 that if they fail at this, He says, essentially, if you fail to exile the inhabitants of the land, it won't go well for you. They're going to be like barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. If you fail to exile the inhabitants of the land, God says, I will exile you. Which, of course, happened. Took a while. God's patient. But some 1,000 years after this, when the Babylonians came in 586 B.C., what did they do? They hauled God's people off into exile, out of the land. And so there's a command here, drive them out, destroy their places of worship. I don't want you getting mixed up with their gods and their idols. And we've already seen seen you do that with the Moabites, right? Drive them out, destroy their high places, take possession and settle. And there's an emphasis here on inheritance in this passage. Have you noticed it? Four times in verse 54, the word is used. God is telling his people, I am giving you this land. It's mine, all the earth is actually. And I'm giving you this land as your inheritance. Friends, from reading the rest of Numbers, we understand, don't we? They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. It's a gift. The fulfillment of a promise made long ago. 
that God would bring his people into this land where they would worship him and be a blessing to all those around them. Chapter 34 then outlines the land. It's an account of boundaries of the land. First the southern border, then the western, then the northern, then the eastern. And chapter 34 verse 12 then summarizes, this shall be your land, verse 13, this is the land you shall inherit. It's going to be distributed by lot. God puts Eleazar and Joshua in charge of dividing out the inheritance along with the chiefs of every tribe. That's what the rest of chapter 34 records. And when you take chapter 34 and you draw it all out, this is what it looks like. This is the map. It's from the ESV study Bible, the boundaries of the promised land. Look familiar? It should, unless you've been living under a rock for the last five or six weeks. Most of us have probably seen a map of this part of the world on the news at some point in recent weeks. The reason, this is the very location of the very current conflict between Israel and Hamas. Which means we should probably say a few things. And I'm going to say a few things. There's sort of a sidebar here. But I think it's important because what we just read, God just told his people to go into this land and drive out the inhabitants. I'm giving you this land. Seems kind of relevant to today, doesn't it? It's very relevant. Listen, I'm not an expert on Middle, Middle East history. I'm going to do my best. But if I say something that's like, you're like, that's eh, a little wrong. Would you come after me afterwards and just gently correct me and we'll grow in understanding this conflict together? Let me say a few things. First, this land has been the subject of controversy and war for ages. From reading the Bible, we know God promised the land to Abraham's offspring. That's what we're reading here in Numbers 14, or 34 is the, the fulfillment of that, the marking out of this land for Yahweh's people. From here forward into the time of David and Solomon, we see God's people establishing themselves in this land. But they don't stay there. In part because of the warning we read of in Numbers 33, verse 55. But from the time of the exile in the Old Testament forward, this land was conquered and claimed by the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and eventually right before and including the time of Christ, the Romans. Later, after the fall of the Roman Empire, the Arabs held this land, followed by the Egyptians and the Seljuks and the Crusaders and the Mamluks and the Ottomans. While all that was going on, the Jews were forced to flee the region, creating a diaspora of Jews. And in the 1880s, in response to the persecution that they experienced in other parts of the world, many Jews began to migrate back to this region, which was at that time under Ottoman control as Palestine. Part of this is the, the history of the Zionist movement and colonization. But in reality... It's 3,500 years at least of colonization and dispossession and driving out and conquering and recolonizing over and over and over again. After World War I, Great Britain took control of the region. 1939, World War II breaks out. Over 6 million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. After World War II, 1947, the UN partitions a Jewish state of Israel and an Arab state of Palestine, a two-state solution. That didn't go super well in 1947. Led to more conflict between Israel and Palestine. And in 1948, Israel was officially established as a nation state. And from there forward, it gets really complicated. More war, increased tension, 
ceasefires, accords, complexities, nuance, right on down to today. My point is this. This region, this land, has been under continuous controversy, possession, dispossession, dating all the way back at least to the book of Numbers. When you look at this map, this is the land. When you hear or read about Palestinians chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that's the river, the Jordan, that's the sea, the Mediterranean. Marked out by God in Numbers 34, the sea is the western border of Israel and the Jordan the eastern. Now what's meant when people say from the river to the sea depends on who's saying it, best I can tell. Best case, it's a call for peace by peaceful Palestinians. Worst case, it's a call for extermination of the Jews from the river to the sea by Hamas. Which leads me to the second thing to be said, Hamas is a terrorist organization. The name Hamas is an acronym, actually, for its official name, which translates from Aramaic to the Islamic Resistant Movement. It's a faction of extreme Islam. That's what Hamas is. But also, not all Palestinians are Hamas. In fact, thousands are actually Christians. And then even more are non-Hamas Muslims. Third, Israel has a right to defend itself. Okay, the most recent conflict began with the bloody attack by Hamas on Israel, including brutal killings, raping of women, murdering children. I mean, we can all with a very clear conscience call that evil. Evil. Fourth, war is nasty. Israel has a right to defend itself, but war is nasty. And we... We're not going to go into just war theory, the tactics of combating terrorism this morning, but war is war. And as Christians, we we can pray for peace. We can care about humanitarian interests in the world for all that are involved, especially innocent civilians, and we can pray for Jesus to return. Which leads me into a fifth point. There are certain streams within Christianity that believe that Israel must occupy the land in order for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom. Have you heard that? Some version of it, maybe? That's not us, actually, as a church. Just in case you were wondering, if you hold to that, that's okay. That's okay. That's an end times issue. It's it's in the realm of eschatology. It's a secondary issue for us as a church. But generally speaking, we're not a church that holds to or teaches dispensational theology. But I think if you go back and trace it out, there's instances of U.S. political involvement in the Middle East that are shaped by this belief that Israel must occupy the land in order for Jesus to return. Seeming to neglect the fact that the New Testament teaches that not all Israel is Israel and that on this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all those who trust in Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike, are his people, are the offspring of Abraham. And we believe that when Jesus returns, like Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, He's going to raise the dead in Christ. Then those of us who are Christians, who are alive at his return, will be caught up with them in the air with the Lord. And we will, from that point, always be together with the Lord. Who will establish his kingdom and his reign on earth as it is in heaven. And it's not going to matter who's living where. He's going to take care of it. All those who trust in Christ are going to forever be with him and he will judge and cast out all those who don't into the eternal torments of hell and there will be shalom, peace, covering the earth. 
Now come back to Numbers 33. Here's why I think it's important. Here's why I think it's appropriate to say all that. God commands here Israel to take possession of this land. To drive out the inhabitants. He gives it to them. From the river to the sea, chapter 34 says. And some today would see that and say, well, that settles it. But don't forget the warning too. That if you don't drive them out, I'll drive you out. Which is exactly what God did in the exile. God's Old Testament people did not successfully drive out all their enemies, and so God eventually in 586 B.C. drove them out. In fact, the Bible teaches us that God himself raised up the Babylonians to drive his people out. And so any, you know, trump card claims to the land today also have to take this into account. It's complex, isn't it? I don't think we got it all sorted, did we? All right, Israel and Hamas sidebar closed. Back to our original purpose, all right? We're trying to emerge from the wilderness. Somebody's like, I'd like to emerge from that wilderness. That was wildernessy. all right? Trying to emerge from the wilderness, which involves looking back, but also pressing forward. What do I mean by that? Well, when you draw out the full boundary that God draws out in Exodus 34, and you read the rest of the Bible, um, you come to realize this broad swath of land was never actually fully possessed by Israel. Not even under David. Not even under Solomon. The entirety of the promised land was never fully possessed. In other words, God gave them more than they could ever even take hold of. Go back to chapter 33, verse 53, one last time. Here's how we get to application for us. Verse 53 You shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess. I've given you the land, now possess it. I've given you the inheritance, now take it. It's already yours, take hold of it. Press forward. Church, isn't this how sanctification works in our life? As Christians, when we read the New Testament, when you trust in Jesus, you belong to him. Every spiritual blessing is yours. Now take it. We see this in Romans 6, which talks about our union with Christ, being united together with him through faith in his death and his resurrection, meaning when you trust in Jesus, his death counts as your death. His resurrection is also yours. Not only will you one day literally be raised to new life, you've been already raised to new life. It's yours. And it's more than you can ever even take hold of. But press on. It's already yours. Now take hold of it. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. You've been set free from sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you, Paul says in Romans 6. Now live like it. Press forward. This is essential to you emerging from the wilderness. Press forward. And actually, in one sense, you're not in the wilderness anymore. God's Old Testament people at this point, remember, they're no longer in the wilderness. They're in the plains of Moab. The land is yours. Go take it, God says. And the same can be said of you, Christian. You're not actually in the wilderness anymore. 
You've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. Everything you truly need, more than, <laughs> more than you can ever even take hold of, is in him. Go take it. And you'll have to fight just because you're out of the wilderness. doesn't mean that there aren't battles ahead. There are. But the ultimate victory has already been won. The victory is yours. Now take it. Listen, when, when you're tempted to sin, when, when you're tempted to doubt, when you watch the news and start to conclude, man, I don't even know if this faith stuff's real. When you're struggling, when you're suffering, when you're sinking, and you're not sure how to keep going, remember who you are, remember whose you are, recall all that God has already done for you, and remember everything that's yours in Christ, and press forward. Yours is a glorious inheritance in heaven. It's yours already. Take it. Press forward. Emerging from the wilderness involves pressing forward. Lastly now, emerging from the wilderness involves taking refuge in Jesus. In chapter 35, we have God speaking to Moses and marking out cities in the promised land for the Levites. 48 total cities. Um, That's what verse 7 tells us. Six of them were special. They were to be cities of refuge. Now, there's there's a lot in chapter 35. Um, let me try to give you a high level. Once in the land, God knows people are still going to, they're still going to kill and be killed. There's two categories chapter 35 gives us. You can read the details on your own this afternoon, but there's murder. And then there's what we call today manslaughter. Murder was when there was intent or premeditation, we might say. And it didn't matter what kind of weapon was used, iron, stone, wood. If you murder someone, you were to be put to death. You push someone out of hatred, throw something at them, widen weight and struck them, you're to be put to death. Not on the account of one witness, but more. You couldn't buy your way out of it. You couldn't talk your way out of it. If you murdered someone, you're to be put to death. You're to be put to death by your avenger of blood, verse 19 says. And this avenger, it's it's the word actually translated elsewhere, um, like in in the book of Ruth, as kinsman redeemer. This wasn't just the toughest dude in the family with a concealed carry permit. You know, it was was the closest relative. It, It was the person responsible to look out for his kinsman's interests, whatever the cost to him. The avenger's role in the case of a family member being murdered was to avenge their death by putting the murderer to death. Over and over in this chapter, it repeats it. You you just can't escape this, right? The murderer shall be put to death, verse 16. The murderer shall be put to death, verse 17. Verse 18, the murderer shall be put to death. Verse 19, the avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. Again in verse 19, he shall put him to death. Verse 20, he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. And then once more in verse 21, the avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. What was God's command with the murderer? 
put to death. By who? The avenger. Why? Well, Genesis 9, 6 tells us, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For or because God made man in his own image. In other words, this law recognized the supreme value of every person made in the image of God by demanding a reckoning for the shedding of innocent blood. Verse 33 says it this way. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So if you killed someone, you polluted the land. God's going to live amongst his people, his image bearers in the land, and therefore atonement must be made for the land for the blood that was shed in it. And the only way to do that, Scripture says, was by the blood of the one who shed it. However, if you killed someone by accident, there was another category. Chapter 35 talks about this. If there was no intent, if you push someone suddenly without premeditation or, or hatred in your heart, if you dropped a stone on someone, whoops, didn't see him there, you know? You're not a murderer. You're a manslayer, according to Numbers 35, or what we roughly might call today manslaughter. And in cases like this, you could flee to one of six cities of refuge. Verse 25 says, The congregation there shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. And the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. And so for the murderer, only the death of the murderer himself could atone. The the murderer must pay for the life he took with his own life. But for manslaughter, the death of another, the high priest could atone. When the high priest died, the manslayer's sentence was up, and he could return from the city of refuge to his home. Might take a little bit, might take a lot bit. We're not sure, just whenever the high priest died. Now you're probably thinking, what on earth does this have to do with me? (laughs) Uh, What does this have to do with me emerging from the wilderness? Well, listen, not much until you read Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says everyone who's angry with his brother is liable to the same judgment as the one who committed murder. I mean, that's a pretty sweeping standard, isn't it? I mean, who in this room over the course of your life, if not the last week, isn't condemned by this? Don't you see, we read a passage like Numbers 35 and we think, this has got nothing to do with me. I'll never kill anybody. And even if I do, I'll probably try to plead it down to manslaughter at least, you know? And yet Jesus says, you're the same. You're the same. It has everything to do with you. Your anger in your heart is the same as murder with your hands. It's all sin. Which also means in the legislation of Numbers 35, there's no city of refuge for you. Jesus doesn't say everyone who is angry with his brother is a manslayer. No, he says everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to the same judgment as the murderer. 
The point? We're all murderers in our hearts and minds. No ransom can deliver us. We, we can't buy our way out of it or earn our way out of it. There's no good deed that we can do to atone for our sin. You can't ransom you. You can't ransom you. Humanly speaking, we can't ransom ourselves. And if that's true, we have nothing to expect but the certain coming of an avenger demanding the just punishment for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Numbers 35 paints this beautifully for I mean, frighteningly for us. The wages of sin is death, and you and I deserve death for our sin. And yet it's right here where the gospel comes in. See, in the gospel, the heavenly avenger becomes your redeemer. The one we expected to be our judge and executioner was himself judged and executed in our place for our sin on the cross, making atonement covering all your sin, past, present, and future. Look, just like God knew his Old Testament people after emerging from the wilderness and entering into the promised land, they would still kill and be killed, that they would still sin and be sinned against, that sin would need to be atoned for, and so he provided a way. So to you and me, after emerging from the wilderness, must continuously take refuge in Jesus. Every moment every day for the indwelling sin in our lives. We still sin, don't we? Listen, you're dead to sin, but you still sin. You're pressing forward and seeking to take hold of what's already yours, but you're not there yet. I mean, you you are already and you're not yet, right? Listen, emerging from adolescence is messy. There's a lot of change going on. There's some spiritual temper tantrums, tantrums that happen. You know, like there's a lot that's going on in your life when you're trying to emerge from the wilderness of adolescence. It's progress and regression, glorious days and really ugly ones. And yet, this is what it looks like to emerge from the wilderness, to grow up out of spiritual adolescence and into spiritual adulthood. We look back. We see God's work all over our lives. And that look back gives us confidence. It gives us hope and expectation that God will continue to be at work in our lives no matter what comes our way. And we press forward. We seek to take hold of what is already ours. And we continuously take refuge in Jesus. Over and over and over again. He covers all your sins if you trust in him. And so churches, you are emerging from the wilderness. Keep taking refuge in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Our imperfect attempts to read and understand it and apply it to our lives. God, would you be doing a work in each of us, growing us up in our faith with you as we emerge from the wilderness. Give us the the courage and the joy of looking back. Give us the endurance for pressing forward. Give us the joy of taking refuge in Jesus. I pray in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. 
Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.